0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 116, verses 1 through 19. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. And then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. Maybe may be seated. As most of you know, we're deep into a series entitled Psalms, Worship in Every Circumstance. It's how to approach and worship God in any circumstance you might find yourself in. The Psalms give us a metaphor for the Christian life. It's actually a dominant metaphor for the entire Bible. It's one of a path. It's a journey. It's a pilgrimage. This path is full of highs and lows and level places. The Psalm provides for us a a guidebook, a playbook. A game plan, you might say, for how to handle those various places in the path we may find ourselves in in the Christian life. This summer, we spent probably way too much time introducing various genres and places on this path. But for those of you who are new, I want to warm you up and introduce you a few. For example, we introduced early in the summer the meditation genre. It's how to approach God when life's path is level or straight or normal. It's how we take advantage of those level places by fiercely chewing on God's Word so that we can prepare, be prepared for those inevitable highs and lows that we will encounter in this path. Later this summer, Ted introduced us to the repentance genre. It's how do we approach God when we experience lows in our life due to our own sin. It's there our goal is to have a happiness of heart. It's there our goal is to see the Holy Spirit bring a crushed heart and a broken spirit within us. It's there we learn to wait on God. Wait on him to show up and speak to us. Wait on him to pull us out of the depths. Wait on him to experience his love and his words of forgiveness. Just recently, I introduced this to the deliverance genre. This shows us how to approach God and worship him when we're in a low, not brought about by our sins, or there's actually no obvious or clear connection to our sin, but lows brought about by circumstances out of our control. In this genre, we're invited to connect deeply to the pain in our lives. And as we're connecting to that pain, we're invited to complain, literally complain to God. And as we complain to God with our cogent complaints, he invites us to cry out for deliverance and know his salvation. And as we cry out for deliverance, we're invited to consider the work he's doing in our lives, the way he's cultivating us and changing us and transforming us. And as we consider that work, we slowly begin to celebrate the beauty of the gospel. Today, this morning, I'm introducing us to the genre of thanksgiving. How do you approach God after He's delivered you from a low? You were in the genre of deliverance, but now He's lifted you out. What do you do? How do you take advantage of this opportunity to truly rest in God? I love to introduce this genre by telling the story of of the rescue of Jessica Buchanan. Jessica was born in Portland, Oregon, and she grew up in the Midwest. She cut her teeth in education, and it was her lifelong dream to be in Africa and to serve the people she's fallen in love with. So she went, and she ran around the continent doing lots of different things within education. During that time, she met her husband, Eric. He was a Swede who was equally as gifted and capable as Jessica, but also had a huge generous heart for that continent. Jessica and her husband, Eric, eventually moved to Somalia. Jessica started working for a Danish demining charity. I didn't know what that meant at first until I read up a little bit more. She was in charge of education for the entire entity. She taught kids their ABCs and how to avoid landmines. Uh, Somalia at that time was worn, torn, it still is. It was ruled by landlords, and it was lawless. And if those little kids were going to grow up, she needed love on them, give them education, and keep them away from the horrors of the war. On October 25th, 2011, A band of land pirates, brandishing AK-47s, abducted her. At gunpoint, they grabbed her and a male colleague of hers, and they drove off. Fearing the worst, she thought she'd be taken advantage of and killed, but only many, many hours later did she realize that her value to them was her potential ransom money. Jessica would spend the next 93 howling days with them. Every day yearning for a second chance at life. Every day wanting to be reunited with her husband. She never had kids. She never got to tell her father she adores how much she loves him. She was yearning for another chance at life. Her Somali captors treated her like like an undesired stray animal. Uh, They spent every day and night exposed to the brush, the desert elements. She quickly became sunburned but would freeze at night. Her only cover was a simple African tree. They barely fed her enough to keep her alive, because that was their only goal, to keep her alive. They had no concern for her well-being. She, at best, would have a can of tuna fish a day. But she lived in constant terror of her captors because they were constantly hyped up on a local narcotic called cot. As you can imagine, Jessica's health naturally deteriorated. She lost massive amounts of weight. She couldn't keep anything in her system, if you understand what I mean. And she developed a UTI where she was unable to stand or walk, and she was doubled over in pain constantly. Thinking her condition was something far worse, she resigned herself to death. She said to herself, I'm dead. Who am I? Who even knows that I'm here? Who even cares? I'm just a small little aid worker in Africa. When a hostage negotiator checked in on his regular basis trying to see if he could free her, She communicated with them, and fearing that she had a kidney problem, she said, I think I'm going to die. I think this is the end. Jessica may have thought she was alone, but she was not alone at all. She was under the watchful eye of the United States government. News of her impending death went straight to the field office of the FBI in Nairobi, and then one phone call away there was directly directed to the Oval Office itself. The President of the United States was deeply concerned for Jessica. He contacted the Secretary of Defense, and they decided to take advantage of an upcoming moonless night. So they sent in the now-famous SEAL Team 6. The very men that took out Osama bin Laden were going to go free, Jessica. On January 25, 2012, 24 Navy SEALs dropped over the desert Somalia. They made their way with great stealth to the pirate encampment. Jessica, in the darkest of nights, heard an eruption of gunfire all around her. She thought to herself, I'm dead. I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead. And then she started praying, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. And then she just assumed it was a rival Islamic group that had come to take her because they don't like Americans and they're going to kill her or make an example of her. So she pulled her makeshift blanket over her head, praying to God, waiting for the end, only to hear multiple hands like pushing on her going, Jessica, Jessica. She heard an American voice. You're safe now. We're Americans. We come to take you home. Now even though her captors were dead, the SEAL team worried about "'Support coming quickly. "'Fearing the worst, seeing that she couldn't walk, "'one seal just literally swooped her up "'and just started sprinting to the extraction location. "'Once they got to the location "'where the helicopters had arrived "'to save her and take her back home, "'they heard noises approaching. "'Again, worried for Jessica, "'they gently laid her on the ground, "'and two soldiers carefully covered her "'and laid on top of her, "'and the other 22 Navy Seals "'formed a human circle around her, "'a human shield.' Now, think about it. 24 of the world's fiercest soldiers lived for that moment to take a bullet for her. At that moment, she felt like the most precious thing on earth. In minutes, a helicopter arrived. She quickly entered the chopper. She, she was strapped in, and it took off. And at that moment, an airman took a carefully folded American flag and presented it to her. She wept. She wept and wept and wept. She'd never been so thankful and proud to be an American. Now, Jessica's retelling of her harrowing story is a beautiful blueprint for the genre of Thanksgiving. And when, she, when you watch 60 Minutes or read her book, you can quickly see she remembered her pain and her need for deliverance. She reveled in the love and the might of her country saving her. She resolved to continue to tell that story over and over and give her life to something so much greater than herself. The psalmist invites us to do these very things in Psalm 116. When God has delivered you from a low, the psalmist invites you to remember, to revel, and to resolve. To remember your pain, which is the key to thanksgiving. To revel in God's grace, which is the power of thanksgiving. And to resolve to give your life. It's the fruit of thanksgiving. So let's jump into our first point this morning. To remember your pain, the key of thanksgiving. When Jessica retells her story in a 60 Minutes interview, she remembers her pain. She literally relives her suffering before you on the television screen. You can, she can see that she's retasting the horror and the captivity that she just, oh, she hated. She fights back the tear multiple times. She doesn't smooth over her pain or undercut her anguish. Jessica models extremely well the key to Thanksgiving, meaning if you have a story of Thanksgiving worth telling, It must begin with that low place, that place we love to forget, that that low place where we needed deliverance. And the writer of Psalm 116 clearly understood that same principle. The principle of importance of remembering your pain when offering thanksgiving for God's deliverance. Let's jump in the text. Look at verse 10. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I believed. When the psalmist is in a low, needing deliverance, he literally kept his faith. His honesty, his pain, his sorrow, not evidence of unbelief or sin, no, not at all. On the contrary, there are evidence of his robust faith and heart engagement. He was greatly afflicted. The psalmist does not sugarcoat or sanitize his pain. He models for us well the need to be honest and connected. A real, healthy followers of Jesus have lows and express them with honest clarity. But he goes on in verse 3. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Sheol and death, often in the Old Testament poetry, are described in aggressive turns. Here they're overwhelming, clutching at the living. It feels like a B-rated horror movie, as if Death and Sheol is this ominous vine with multiple limbs clutching at the living, trying to take them down. But just look at how the psalmist describes the suffering, distress and anguish. The word anguish is helpful here. It literally means narrow spot, tight place, where there's no choices, there's no freedom, the walls are kind of pushing in, and there's no air to breathe. This psalm once again provides for us a refreshing, honest look at the, what our interior of our souls could look like after being delivered from a low. Our pain-averse culture loves to forget our suffering, but it's only remembering our suffering that we can move forward in thanksgiving. As you can see again from the text, the key to thanksgiving, the start to thanksgiving, the ignition to thanksgiving, is remembering your pain. Now, think back with me. To the times God has delivered you from a low place, how vibrant was your thanksgiving how technicolor was your celebration? If you want your future thanksgivings as vibrant as Psalm 116, it begins with remembering your pain, but not as an end to itself, but as a key to move forward in thanksgiving, which leads us to our second stage or point of thanksgiving, to revel, to revel in God's grace, which is the power of thanksgiving. Jessica, in every interview, she clearly marveled at her deliverance, She reveled at the might and force of her country. She was struck by the magnitude of her rescue. She was blown away by how much she mattered to her nation. She was thrown off. that Her country would go to such great lengths to save her. And she was struck by how loving and gentle her rescuers were. Like Jessica, the psalmist revels in his deliverance. He glories in the God that has been so gracious to him. He basks in the wonder of the faithfulness of his God. Look at verse 4. And then I called in the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. He quickly recalls this prayer of deliverance, and then he builds from there. Verse 8. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. He quickly restates how God lifted him out of that desperate low place. And then verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. In the Hebrew, you can just see this verse pop out of the page. It's an outburst of praise. This is a personal restatement of God's own description of himself in Mount Sinai. There's no pretense. There's no presumption. The psalmist celebrates the grace of God, which he is not merited, which he does not deserve. The psalmist gives credit where credit is due. His deliverance is based on God's mercy. His deliverance is based on God's faithfulness to his promises. And then he builds from there. Verse 7, return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Now, just like Psalm 42 and Psalm 103, the psalmist is inviting us to talk to ourselves. He's inviting us to challenge and charge and command our souls to activity. He's functionally saying, look how bountiful and generous and kind and open-handed and gracious God's been to you. Soul, look at the grace of God. This is your home. This is your true rest. Soul, look and come back to this place. Look at the God who gives you this grace. Look at his endless mercy. Rest only here. But I actually think verse 7 is not the height of his wonder and his love, but verse 1 This psalm starts off with a bang. It starts off with force. Look at verse 1 with me. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. There's actually no object here in the Hebrew. They imported the Lord here. The, The psalm literally starts off with, I love. The psalm starts off with passion and love. Right out of the gate, he starts out with his present tense love for God. It reminds me of the letter of John where he says, we love because he first loved us. The psalmist is madly in love with his God, ravished with his God because his God loves him. Do you revel in your deliverance? Do you glory in the grace of God? Do you wrestle your heart down to rest in that grace God has for you? And do you focus your channel and your affections upon your gracious God? Let's be honest for a moment. This is something we don't often very do. I know when I looked over this text and looked over my heart, I don't think I can be described as one who revels in God's grace and glory. We quickly forget or take credit of the lowercase d deliverances. So how do we recapture the power of thanksgiving? How do our hearts light up with the grace of God and his love? Uh, It starts with reveling in our capital D deliverance. Think about it. How has your gracious God delivered you? Unlike Jessica, like every other human being, you deserve the captivity and sin and death that you were born in. Your hearts in so many levels wanted to be authority unto itself, and you rebelled against both the law of God but also the love of God as well. Yet like Jessica, you remember the torment and the bondage of your sin and how your sin pressed in on you and led you to places you did not want to go. Yet your Father in heaven moved towards you in your sin and shame. He chose you in the midst of the enemy camp in which you lived in, and the Father sent his Son down to you. On the cross, Jesus laid on top of you. He covered you, and he absorbed the wrath that you deserve, the punishment you deserve for all your sin. And as he covered you and took on your sin and shame was crushed for you and died for you, he gave you his identity. He gave you his righteousness. He gave you his standing before his heavenly father. From there, the father and son have given you the Holy Spirit and they made you alive to God and a son and a daughter. But not just a child of God, an heir of all things to come. And even now the resurrected Jesus sits on his heavenly throne and he looks down upon you and he prays for you and enjoys you and loves you and takes care of you and protects you because he has delivered you from sin and death and he will return you home safely to your heavenly father. Will you enjoy him forever? Now think of how much you matter to your heavenly father. Think of how precious and costly you are to him Think about how much he loves you that he would sacrifice his son for you. Now look, I know it's not cool or modern or presbyterian or urban or sophisticated you to revel in God's grace. It's so rarely done. But it's the power of thanksgiving. It's it's what unleashes the gospel in your heart. It's what propels you forward in worship. It's what liberates you to affectionately love your God back. But this is what's most challenging to me about this psalm. It doesn't end with reveling in God's grace. Your reveling should lead to something else. Proper thanksgiving of deliverance ends in action beyond reveling in the glory of God. Again, from our text, we see the key to thanksgiving is remembering our pain. We see the power of thanksgiving is to revel in God's grace. Finally, we'll see that the fruit of thanksgiving is to resolve to give your life. Again, to resolve to give your life the fruit of thanksgiving. Now look at verse 2. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I'll call on him as long as I live. It's a summary statement of the entire chapter. It's a summary statement for renewed resolve. Because God first loved him, I will call. But what does the word call mean? Call means to pray and to praise and to proclaim. So you can see that the fruit of thanksgiving is to resolve to pray to his gracious God, praise his gracious God, and proclaim his endless worth of his gracious God. So how does that fruit compare with the fruit of your thanksgiving? Oh, I wish the psalmist ended there, but he kept going. Verse 9. I'll walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Literally, he will walk before the face of Yahweh. The psalmist is clearly referencing Psalm 56, verse 13. There he promises to walk in the presence and the light of God. Again, look at the fruit of the psalmist's thanksgiving. It's a resolve to live under the gracious presence and awareness of God. How does this compare to the fruit of your thanksgiving? He doesn't end there. Go to verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? The psalmist is asking a rhetorical question. What return can I give to God for this salvation? How can I repay God back for all this grace he's given to me? The psalmist in his fervent gratitude, he's a little worked up here, he's making a powerful point in in a question. There is no way to pay back God. There is no limit to how we can respond back to God's love and mercy, which begs the question. How do you respond to the deep and perfect and limitless love of God that demands everything? Just watch the psalmist the next five verses. Verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Now, a cup of salvation, this is a hard one. It's a very irregular use of this word. When you try to tie it back to temple worship, it ceases to make sense. And trust me, a 100 commentators tried. A drink offering, which they try to compare it to, is typically poured out. But this is referring to a drink that you lift up, which means you own, you drink, you use. Now we know in the scriptures there's a cup of wrath that needs to be drunk. And someone has to drink that cup for our salvation. And this morning we rejoice that Jesus drank that cup for our salvation. But this, this is not a a, a cup of wrath. This is a cup of salvation that we get to drink. This cup stands for all the blessings that belongs to a person that God loves. The psalmist is moving towards God in prayer and praise and proclamation, and he was resolved to soak in every bit of God's grace. He's resolved to take that cup of blessing and drink it down to the dregs. This is the fruit of thanksgiving. The psalmist is resolving to know and to taste and to experience the blessing of God for him in salvation. How does this compare with the fruit? of your thanksgiving verse 16 oh lord i'm your servant i'm your servant the son of your maidservant you've loosed my bonds oh lord again it's an extremely deeply personal way to be addressing god look at what he says he says i'm yours you're my master now i'm your slave for the rest of my life real freedom for me is to do your bidding your love is so amazing that bondage to you is real freedom It kind of reminds me of the language Paul uses in Romans 12, where he says, I'm a living sacrifice. It's it's another way of saying, may I be attentive to my master's bidding the rest of my life. Again, this is the fruit of thanksgiving, to be resolved to be a servant of our gracious God. How does this compare with the fruit of your thanksgiving? Again, The psalmist builds. Verse 17, I'll offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of our Lord. Again, he wants to be clear that his deliverance is God's doing. He wants to give God all the credit for his deliverance. So where does he offer this sacrifice of thanksgiving? Look at verses 14, 18, and 19. I'll read them. I'll pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all people. Verses 18, 19. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. The psalmist does not offer his thanksgiving in a vacuum. You will find no privatized Christianity or relationship with God in the Psalms. He must offer his thanksgiving in Jerusalem. He must offer his thanksgiving in Jerusalem in the courts of the temple of God, God's house. He must offer his praise in Jerusalem, in the courts of the temple, in the presence of God's people. Why? So that all of God's people will praise the Lord. The psalmist knows that the people of God need to know his story. They need to hear about his deliverance so that they too will worship so that they too will value thanksgiving, so that they too might remember their pain, that they too might revel in God's grace, that they too might resolve to give their lives to him. This is the fruit of thanksgiving, a resolve to give God glory and to have God's people hear his thanksgiving. How does this compare with the fruit of your thanksgiving? So where are you overall with this third point? What is the fruit of your thanksgiving? What resolutions typically populate your heart? Do you share the psalmist's resolve to offer your life to God? It's overwhelming, isn't it? Who who of us doesn't just absolutely fail compared to this standard? (laughs) uh, When I got back from India... Now, again, it happened again. I'm preaching a sermon after I got back from India. i, I got to take this up with Ted. but So uh, I was sleepier every morning like I am right now, but I, would, I did some great writing from 2 to 5 on Thursday, Friday, and then most of all day Saturday. And every time I got to this point, I got stuck, and I just wept. I, I don't know how to thank God. I'm in trouble. <laughs> this passage is overwhelming me. I've I got to preach it like it's the word of God, it means something, but I feel crushed every time I engage these six verses. If you're like me and a failure when it comes to thanksgiving, you need to know that there's grace for you, that the gospel is big enough for you. Jesus loves sinners, and he comes to sinners in their neediness, and if your neediness is not knowing how to be thankful for his deliverance, that's okay, And he's moving towards you right now. And I think your application might be my application. It's time to learn how to revel in the grace of God, to celebrate his capital D, salvation. Now, why really matters? Your life is a constant revolving documentary. You're like 60 minutes on steroids. Your city, your community watches you all the time, and you're going to have a ton of lows the rest of your life. And God's going to deliver you from most of those lows. Not all, but most of those lows. So what's the story you're going to tell? How much fun are you going to have telling that story over and over and over? And who is going to get to praise God because of the story you're going to tell? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that we have a great redeemer the fiercest of warriors who's tracked us down and redeemed us. And he saves us and he holds us dear and he won't let us go. And Father, we must again confess that we don't revel and bask and delight in that glory and love enough. We've not made our home there. And like the psalmist, we have to tell our soul to return to that loving, restful place. Father, make us a people that's thankful Help us to not avoid our pain, but remember it. Help us to revel in your grace and glory and do that in such a way, Lord, we're resolved to be your servant, humbly willing to do your bidding with great joy. We pray this, Lord, so that more people will praise your name, the more people in Orlando exalt you, the more people in Orlando will be liberated from sin and death and be held captive by your grace and give glory to you alone. And We pray this for your glory i